If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of watching films about them. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Allison Levine into the conversation. Allison is a leadership expert, polar explorer, and mountaineer who is no stranger to extreme environments. She has survived sub-zero temperatures, hurricane force winds, sudden avalanches, even a career on Wall Street, only to then serve as deputy finance director for Arnold Schwarzenegger in his successful bid as the governor of California. She would later become an adjunct professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and in true playmaker fashion, she continues to serve as a senior fellow at the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics at Duke University. From the peaks of Everest to the peaks of business, you're in for one hell of a ride. Buckle up and let's welcome Allison Levine into the Playmakers podcast. Allison, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? We're doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. No, on behalf of all Playmakers, it is our pleasure So here's where I got to start. For every playmaker, you can check Allison out. She's very easy to find. Go to her website. Here's what you're going to see. And then I'm going to double click on one of these for you, Allison. So described as an adventurer, explorer, mountaineer, New York Times bestselling author, leadership advisor, beer muse, filmmaker, storyteller, dog lover, empowerer, knowledge sharer, challenge taker, boundary breaker, I'm almost out of breath, growth enabler, impact maker, and game changer. So given all of that, I'd love to ask you. As a beer muse, what's your favorite beer? Oh, well, I like, (laughs) so I love chocolate. I love everything chocolate. So I like chocolate stouts. Ooh, that's awesome. I know, you not what you were expecting. Yeah, I, there's a um, brewery called Bold Missy Brewery in Charlotte. Unfortunately, they did, they closed down during COVID. I'm hoping at some point they will come back, but they actually named a beer after me. And my my likeness is on the label, but it's called Conquer the Route Chocolate Stout. So, of course, that's my favorite. But anything chocolate is basically going to work for me. Oh, that's so awesome. And repeat that. It was Conquer the Route Chocolate Stout. Yeah. Conquer the Route Chocolate Stout. Very cool. All right. Now let's go into conquering the route then, because you are also known as a history making explorer. And there's a lot to unpack and we're going to hang out in this space for a while. But rather than talk about pun intended, the peaks and the pinnacles and all of the things that you've done, I want to go back to yesterday, yesteryear, because there's a sense of adventure. There's a sense of curiosity. There's just so much here. So Walk us through your earlier years, formative years, childhood years. Where did this sense of adventure come from? All right. So (laughs) (laughs) I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And of course, everybody knows how brutally hot Phoenix is in the summer. And so when I was younger, I was always very obsessed with the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I'd watch these documentary films, I think because it felt like 
and escape from the oppressive summer heat. So I loved these stories about really cold places when I was growing up in Arizona, but I never actually thought I would go to those places because I had some health challenges as a kid. I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older, but I was not properly diagnosed until I was 17 years old and lost consciousness. And um, the friends that I was with had the good sense to rush me to the emergency room where I was diagnosed with this life-threatening heart condition. Um, I had my first heart surgery when I was 17. I had another one. That one didn't work so well, but I had another one when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, okay, hang on, because if I want to know what it's like to be this explorer, Reinhold Messner, and drag a 150-pound sled across Antarctica, then I should go drag a sled across Antarctica instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of watching films about them. And if these other guys can go do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I actually did not climb my first mountain until I was 32 years old. It was about 18 months after my second heart surgery. So started a bit later in life, but, you know, still going. Well, there's something really cool to unpack here, though, because I think a lot of folks and maybe there is something different or unique from what you just shared that we may be interested and that we may be fascinated by studying, whether it comes via uh, TV or movies or just some other sort of fascination that we have. But what I really pick up on that you just said is you did something about it. You took action. Yes. So that's the, the key is that. So often in life we say, oh, this looks cool or that looks cool or I wish I could do that or I admire this person for doing this. And then we leave it at that, right? But you never know how your life can completely change if you just say, well, what if I tried that too? And, you know, look, it's it's scary to try things that are outside of our comfort zones, but you just never know what can happen if you try, right? Even if you don't achieve the thing you set out to achieve the first time, the second time or ever, I guarantee it's going to have some impact on your life. And so I, I believe we're on this earth for a limited time. I mean, look, maybe we do have multiple lives. That would be great, but I just don't know that for sure. So as far as I know, our days on this planet are limited. And I just think, why not try as much as you can during that lifetime? Why don't you try to do as many things that are outside of your comfort zone as you can try? Outside of comfort zone. And you brought up the word that it might be scary. So let's let's wrap that as fear. And you're not saying there's an absence of fear. You're saying that you did it in spite. So uh, that's my question for you. What is your relationship with fear? So I am a person that feels fear on almost every expedition that I'm on and, and through in other aspects of my life too, not just in the mountains or in these polar environments. I feel fear. I feel it very deeply and it doesn't help me at all when somebody says, don't be scared. <laughs> that doesn't alleviate my feelings of fear. I, oh, okay, great. Now I'm not scared. Thank you for saying that. I have no more fear. Uh, it's not, doesn't work that way for me. So it doesn't help me at all when someone says, oh, don't be scared because that doesn't make the, the feeling of the fear go away. But what I, what I had to really embrace is this mindset 
that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can, you can be scared and brave at the same time. And so that's really how I think about fear. It's a waste of energy for me to try to squash fear and hold it down. I just let myself feel it. And I just remind myself that you can be scared and brave at the same time. Fear is a normal human emotion, uh, but you don't have to let it paralyze you. That's the thing about fear. So good because I've studied courage a lot and it's also one of my core values and the way that I personally define it. I don't know what Webster and the dictionary say. The way I personally define it is courage is standing tallest when fear and risk are highest. I'll repeat that standing tallest when fear and risk are highest. So I'm not removing fear and risk. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I am actually saying that is our moment to step into it because as you know, growth and discomfort. And I mean, there's, there's just some non-negotiables of everyone listening in wants to become better versions of themselves. And it's not going to be in the safe lane that we get there. I love that definition of courage. It's brilliant. I mean, and that's the thing is we're never going to I I also think we're, we're never going to get rid of things that scare us. Uh, if we do, then we're playing it too safe in life. Right. Life is about taking risks. That's how you grow. That's how you achieve big things. Uh, but with fear, if you think about it in the right fashion, you can actually use fear to your advantage. And that's what I've learned to do as well is use fear to my advantage. Fear it. I think if most people are thinking about fear and you had to to put it in a category bucket, a, a positive emotion category bucket or a negative emotion category bucket, I think most people put it in the negative emotion. They think fear is a, a negative mm-hmm. thing. But I've learned to really frame it differently. And I think of fear as something that can help me move forward because fear will keep me awake, alert, aware of everything going on around me. If you're going through, let's say, the Kumbu Icefall on Mount Everest, which is one of the most dangerous parts of the mountain. If you're going through that Kumbu Icefall and you're not feeling fear, you're not paying attention. So I think fear at times helps me pay attention and focus on everything that's going on around me. And that is what can help keep me safe. So fear can actually be a a positive versus a negative. Mm, So good. And maybe this is apples and oranges, but for playmakers from past conversations, we always talk about the world of self-discovery and, and the goal of personal transformation. And instead of thinking of it as this kumbaya, all positive stuff, I actually say, and this is where I think it connects to what you just said, Allison. I say, pay attention to your tension. Where do you feel tension? Where are you triggered? What are those things that you say, I don't like that. I hate that. And okay. So then you kind of do the inverse of what's the opposite because it's telling you, here's what I can't solve. I can't solve for apathy, love and hate. I can play in both spaces. I can play in both because it means you care. It actually means you care. So I'm going to pay attention when I have a strong emotion, even if it may not be so positive in the moment. So it's a bit of an apples and oranges, but I do think that they closely connect here. 
So Allison, you mentioned being scared and brave at the same time. Now, for those that are just learning more about your background, they're fascinated by the way that we've riffed a bit on fear and how you've really been courageous and stepped into it. But talk to us about the Adventure Grand Slam. Just fill us in on a lot of the the journey because you got us started. So pick it up where we left off. So the Adventure Grand Slam is climbing the seven summits. That's the highest peak on each of the seven continents, and then skiing to both the North and the South Pole. I think there's, you know, probably a couple dozen people in the world who've completed the Adventure Grand Slam today. But at the time when I completed it in 2010, there were only a couple of us. Um, And it really wasn't a bucket list item for me by any means, because I was one of those people that thought, oh, especially just you have to climb Mount Everest to achieve the Adventure Grand Slam. And I thought I would never have the time off from work. I would never have the money to do something like that. At the time when I first climbed, it was $25,000 a person. You know, that was so much money in 2002 on a five-figure income with $70,000 of debt living in San Francisco. I thought there's no way, but um, never say never, right? If there's something you really want to do, you can find a way to do it. And I just found a sponsor in the Ford Motor Company, ended up getting an unpaid leave of absence from work. But I I didn't set out to complete the Grand Slam. I just started climbing mountains. And of the dozens and dozens of mountains that I'd been to, some of them were the mountains that are part of the seven summits, the highest peak on each continent. And I, I never really even knew there was such a thing as the Adventure Grand Slam until I was at Everest Base Camp in 2010. And we were, um, the people on my expedition were sitting around the mess tent, just talking about our various experiences on different expeditions and on different mountains. And we were just talking about our favorites and things that we had done. And so I was kind of rattling off some of my favorites. And someone said, you know, if you if you summit Everest, that's the adventure grand slam. And I said, I don't, I don't even know what that is. That's when you get a, a free breakfast at Denny's. And that's, a, that's the only thing I knew about grand slam. And then someone explained what it was. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. But, uh, so when, when I did summit Everest in 2010, that was my second attempt. That was the completion of the grand slam. So it's, um, you know, I do, There are so many other mountains, I think, that are more interesting than some of the seven summits, for sure. But what climbing the seven summits does allow you to do is have experiences on each of the seven continents. And I think that's just kind of cool from a travel perspective and just learning about different cultures and different ways of life. And so... I think that's what's kind of cool about, you know, ticking off the the seven, just, you know, the seven summits. Forget the, you know, the North and South Pole are different animals all together. And those were incredible experiences, too. But I just love going to the mountains because you can throw everything you need in a backpack, right? A tent, a sleeping bag, some freeze dried food, a camping stove, some warm clothes. And you can really see the world for almost next to nothing. Yeah. Oh, God. In terms of, you know, having to spend money. Yeah, no, way, way too much to unpack here, but I am, I'm going to do my very darndest. Let's start at a light place, though, because I, like most of our listeners, have probably never been in the types of conditions that you have been. So, sub zero temperatures, to, to the best of your knowledge, what is the coldest temperature you've ever been in? 
So I spent close to two months in Antarctica on this South Pole ski expedition. It was 600 miles on skis from the edge of the West Antarctic ice shelf to the South Pole. It took nearly two months. And Antarctica is the coldest, windiest place on Earth. In I was there in summertime where the average temperature is a balmy minus 50. So not quite bikini weather, but yeah, that's the average temperature in the summer. And, the, and you're there, you're out there in the elements every day. So there's no escape from it. When you go skiing and the wind picks up and it gets really cold, uh, you go into the lodge and you have a cup of hot chocolate or you catch the shuttle bus back to your, the parking lot and get in your car and go. There is there is no escape when you're in Antarctica on one of these expeditions. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to get out, to get away from the discomfort. So you just have yeah. to learn to be at peace with it. And that's the key to success during these expeditions. Hmm. Be at peace. Well, as a proud born and raised Angelino, I can barely handle positive 50 degrees, nevertheless, negative 50 degrees. So you're taking my delta about a, the century. <laughs> I mean, you're from Phoenix, so you get it. But look, even the desert gets a little chilly at night. But uh, oh, my goodness. So, Allison, all these amazing places and that's where. We'll get back to some of the climbing, but I want to talk about you personally. If you were to understand and reflect back to who Allison was, the very first mountain that she climbed versus let's say at the point in life where you hit that grand slam. So Allison at the first point and then to that point, what did you learn about yourself? What did you grow? How did you grow? How did you evolve? So the first mountain I ever climbed was Mount Kilimanjaro. And there's probably a lot of people listening to this that have climbed Kilimanjaro. It's not a technical climb. You don't need any special skills or training. You just need warm clothes and you need to be able to put one foot in front of the other. But this mountain for me, while it was the, the easiest of the seven summits, but don't get me wrong, you, you feel the altitude because you're over 19,000 feet when you're at the summit. But for me, this was one of the most important mountains I've ever been to, because even though it's not technical and even though tens of thousands of people climb it every year, it was where I learned the most important lesson, which is that even when I feel incredibly uncomfortable and exhausted, I can keep going. So here was the situation on Kilimanjaro. I was supposed to go with two girlfriends. This was 18 months after my second heart surgery. And I wanted to do something that I wouldn't have been able to do before my surgery. Right. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go climb a big mountain because I love these stories about these adventurers going on these expeditions. So, you know, it's not a huge mountain, but again, over 19,000 feet, I'm going to go to Kilimanjaro. I made plans with these two girlfriends and two weeks before the trip, they decided that they wanted to go to Club Med in Cancun instead. Well, growing up in Phoenix, warm weather was not a big deal to me. And so I didn't want to give up on my dream to go to Kilimanjaro. So I just went by myself to Tanzania. I had uh, lived and worked in Southeast Asia and I had a ton of frequent flyer miles. And so 
I flew to Tanzania by myself and I found a local guide and porters at the base of the mountain. This is in 1998. I think it cost me two or $300 at the time. And I climbed Kilimanjaro and it was life-changing for me because on summit day, this is my first time at altitude and I'm really feeling it. I am really feeling it. Approaching this 19,000 and change mountain, you know, the, the summit. And it was summit day and I started to feel really sick to my stomach and I had a banging headache. And this is normal at altitude. But of course, I didn't know that because I had never been to altitude before. So I had not experienced these, this feeling of extreme discomfort with the headache and the sick to my stomach. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I, I started to, get out of my tent to for to head to the summit. I thought, I can't go. I can't go. I feel much too sick. I feel much too uncomfortable. I'm going to go down. But before I go down, I'm just going to walk a couple more steps over to this rock over here. And I, you know, put this rock in my sight. And I thought, I'm just going to go over to that rock. And then I'm, I'm going to go down for sure. Because I know I can't keep going because I feel too uncomfortable. And so I walked over to the rock I thought, oh, this is a really cool view from this rock. I'm definitely going to turn around and go down. But before I do, I'm just going to walk over to that that next rock down the trail and check things out. And then I'm for sure turning around. So I walk to the next rock. Oh, boy, do I feel crappy. I feel like I'm going to puke. I know I can't keep going. But before I turn around, maybe I'm just going to go to that next rock. And then I go to the next rock. I know I can't do this, but you know, again, one more rock. Well, before I knew it, I was standing on top of that mountain and it was such an important lesson for me because it taught me that you can keep going even when you feel incredibly uncomfortable. And so on every subsequent climb, when I started to feel exhausted and tired and sick to my stomach thinking I can't keep going and can't keep going, I would think, okay, hang on, because you felt like this before. And you kept going so you can do it again now. Like you did it once before so you can do it now. And I think it that's why it's so important to have that first big mountain in your life that you know you got to the top of that one. You know you climbed that one and it wasn't easy and you felt like puking with every step. But you did it. And so the next time you feel like you're struggling and you feel like you're about to puke, you, you think back to that experience and you think, okay, hang on, because I felt like this before and I still made it so I can make it this time too. And it just gave me that confidence to know I could push through that discomfort and keep going. Amazing, amazing. And this resonates on so many levels. Allison, literally almost verbatim, when I was... And we were all in a rough spot spring of 2020. I think a lot of us from the neck up and, and many of us in other ways. And, and nobody ever wants to run a, a repeat of the spring of 2020 and beyond. But I'll tell you what, when it was early pandemic, I remember in, it started in my coaching work, but then I just started talking to whoever would listen about this very important lesson that you've been here before. Because if you put on the news, they said the words unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. And maybe in our lifetime, a lot of us have not been through a pandemic of that size and stature. But here's where I challenged folks. I said, maybe we haven't been through a pandemic, but how are you feeling right now? 
I'm afraid. I'm uncertain. I feel lost. I feel stuck. And I said, okay, okay, let's just grab onto some of these words. You haven't dealt with a pandemic, but have you been afraid? Yes. Have you felt lost? Yes. Have you been stuck? Yeah. And so now I say, see, we've been here before. So the last time that you were afraid, how'd you overcome it? The last time you felt stuck, how'd you overcome it? And so you just look for that common denominator because the mantra is you've been here before. You've been here. Brilliant. Yes. Yes. You just have to go back and think about those past experiences and how those can help you when you're feeling doubt and uncertainty in the future. Hi, Playmakers. It's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes. And on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. And so thinking about all the... You highlighted one lesson. I know there are countless others, but talk to us about how you've been able to apply it in every other aspect of life. So, of course, a big part of your story is the the adventure side, but not all. You, like I and a lot of playmakers, we've been in the business space, the leadership space. So let, let's shift gears and let's let's detach a little bit from the lessons that you learned. Maybe that started as an adventure, but also from within yourself How have you been able to apply those to the rest of your life? Well, I really do believe that I was put on this earth to help people develop into stronger leaders. I feel like that is my calling. And I was fortunate enough to spend, I spent four years on the part-time faculty at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership, where I was in the classroom with cadets. Um, talking to them about how to lead teams in extreme environments. How do you get people to keep going and take that extra step when they have no idea what's coming at them down the trail, when the environment around them poses a lot of risk and is constantly shifting and changing? And so those were the things I lectured about in the classroom at West Point. And then now I am on the faculty of the Thayer Leadership Group at West Point, which is an executive education program that shares West Point leadership best practices with corporate executives. So I'm actually the only non-military faculty member. Um, But they just thought my experiences on leading teams in extreme environments were really applicable to the military. And they hear from generals you know, retired generals so often and from other decorated military officers that they thought maybe it would be interesting to have somebody present these leadership lessons in a totally different context. And I just I love sharing these lessons and listening to people talk about their own experiences. And how do you how do you create trust and loyalty on a team? Right. How do you get people to take that extra step for you? when they feel like they're going to quit. And I also want to share something. This will probably be a little bit unexpected, but some really great leadership lessons that I learned outside of my uh, 
expeditions, I actually learned when I was working as deputy finance director for Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> during his campaign for governor in 2003. I learned some amazing lessons from him that stick to me to this day. So I was a very junior staffer on the campaign. He had a lot of very experienced people who had, you know, who were big names in the political arena. And I was very junior and I worked in, I was deputy finance director. So our job was fundraising, right? Raising money. So we had the money for advertising. That's where most of the money goes for political campaigns is to advertising expenditures. And I remember a few days into the campaign, he walked by me in the hallway and he looked at me and he said, how's our mountain climber doing today? And it completely blew me away. The fact that he knew this about me, he probably didn't even know my name at that point. I was so again, I was so junior on the campaign. And and the fact that he stopped me to ask me about something that was important to me, he didn't stop me in the hallway and say, Hey, uh, how's campaign finance going? Did you did you get Mark Cuban on the phone? Is he sending us a check? Do we do we have the money for our next advertising spend? He didn't ask me about what I was doing for him. He asked me specifically about something that was important to me. And that really stuck with me. I thought if he knows this about me, I guarantee he knows something personal about every single member of this campaign staff. And that is how you get people to push even harder for you and for the team. That is how you get people to want to win as a team is by making sure they know that you as the leader, you care about them as a person, not as a job function, but as a, you know, a person, as a human being, right? He didn't ask me about deputy finance director. He asked me about Allison Levine, the mountaineer. And that really stuck with me. And I, I've learned how important that is to make sure people on your team know you care about them as human beings, not as job functions. Yeah, so good. And especially in today's day and age where we talk about work-life integration and just how much more holistic life is. Like, I think the old school way of thinking about work and life was that they were two separate buckets. And now I, I think especially one of the silver linings of the past few years is just how freaking integrated they are. And so that's where we create the harmony. I'm not a work-life balance guy. I'm a work-life harmony guy. Are you where you want to be when you need to be there? And so if that's the case, I also want to talk to all playmakers for a quick sec on this because we may be using the leader word. This is a human word. This is a human principle that Allison just brought us to. If you are an entry-level intern in a role and you say, how do I build greater relationships to my left and right? And by the way, above, of course. And if you're senior, then you can go in every single direction that you want. This is just human relationships 101 is not just what they do for a living, not just how they can benefit you or serve you, but do you give a damn enough to step into their space, the platinum rule of treating others as they want to be treated, getting to know something about them that is important to them? Because it's interesting, even asking the direct question, Allison, and I'm sure we could tackle this in so many ways about how do we find out what's most important to somebody? How do you find out what they care about in a 30 minute coffee? Like you can get so far if we just ask some questions and listen, just 
listen. And I think it's so rarely practiced nowadays. So I, I love that you brought us there. Everybody, um, you started to mention about this, but we're, we're all in a leadership position, right? Every single one of us, because leadership is not about title or tenure or how many people report to you or how big of a budget you oversee. Leadership's about realizing that every member of a team has a responsibility to help that team move toward a goal. And everybody also has a responsibility to be looking out for one another. And your team doesn't have to be your your team at work. You know, it's your family. It's your circle of friends. It's the people in your community. You know, maybe in your church or your synagogue, if you attend those things, you, you have a team around you right? All the time. And you are in a position to have a huge, a huge positive influence on people every single day. If you just think about that. And Allison, you and I, we have a very common network in the thought leadership space where you're on stages all over the globe. One of the most highly sought after in demand speakers in the world. And anybody just literally you're a YouTube click away from experiencing the magic. And hopefully one day in person, you could see Allison. But if you were to say, Allison, right now for uh, you could make it about the community at large or the business community, if we want to be more targeted when you're when you get invited in to speak. What are the biggest challenges that you're being brought in to help uh, solve? And how do you lean into those? What advice or perspective would you have on just those major gaping holes that are real in the world that's around us right now? So each event I speak at is a little bit different in terms of the challenges the organization is facing or the challenges their industry is facing. Um, I have one coming up for an organization that makes baby food. You know, there's been the big baby food shortage, and that's been a very public, um, you know, uh, a, a very public issue, right? And they are getting criticized everywhere for the fact that there's a baby formula shortage. So, or it could be just, um, you know, financial services with all the uncertainty in the market or real estate, right? The real estate market six months ago was so different than it is now with the high interest rates and everything. So it the, the types of challenges that these audiences are facing is different. But one thing that is the same for all of them is that they are all dealing with uncertainty, right? Because we have no idea what is coming at us down the trail and and whatever plan we came up with. Right. It's great to have a plan, but whatever plan we came up with is outdated as soon as it's finished. Right. A lot of times you have a one year, a five year plan, a one year plan. You came up with a plan a month ago. You came up with a plan this morning. Your plan that you came up with this morning is already outdated because plans are outdated as soon as they're finished when you're in these environments that are constantly shifting and changing. And I don't think any of us have seen as much shifting and changing as what we've seen since, you know, spring of 2020. But the way I lean into every single one of these opportunities that I have on stage is I just tell myself that time is our most valuable asset. And these people sitting in the room with me that are going to be sitting in the room with me are giving me an hour of their time or 45 minutes or whatever, whatever my length on stage is. They're giving me 45 minutes of their time. I better damn well deliver something 
that's going to make them say, I'm really glad I was in that room with Allison Levine for the past 45 minutes. That's my goal is I want them to walk away and think there's nowhere else I would have rather been than in this room listening to this speech. And so that's how I approach every single speech. So I look at the company and their internal challenges and challenges within the industry and think, what what kind of talking points do I need to deliver? And what can I what takeaways can I give them that will help them cope with these uncertain, changing, ambiguous environments? And so that's kind of what the way I look at it every day, because now as opposed to pre-pandemic, I think people often sort of coasted when things were good in their company and in their industry. But now I feel like we're just waiting for some other kind of global shock to the world. Uh, and we know it could happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. But I feel like we are all much more prepared to adjust and adapt quickly and to continue moving through uncertainty. Mm, so good. So good. And thinking back to a couple other conversations I've uh, studied up and from past podcasts and other interviews in the media that you've done, I've heard a couple of terms and one of them, maybe both actually apply to what you just said and, and perhaps you want to riff on them. One, you have this really cool acronym about VUCA, so I've, I've heard you say VUCA and a lot of, uh, you know, the, the volatility uncertainty there, but also the one that I really uh, admire and respect about your perspective, because it's something that I believe and maybe I don't put it as succinctly is that progress is not one directional. So you talk about progress not being so if I think of uncertainty and here we are and we're stuck and life can get a little muddy, but progress I used to self-admittedly think it was a one-way train, you know, it's like stock, the, the good stock, it's up and to the right <laughs> and that's it. But, but you bring us to a really uh, unique insight. So maybe you want to share that with all playmakers. I think this will be really cool. I would love to share this. And um, this is a lesson that I learned climbing Mount Everest. So many people mistakenly think that when you're climbing Mount Everest or any other big 8,000 meter peak. So 8,000 meters is about 26,000 feet. There's 14 mountains in the world that are over 8,000 meters. And when you're climbing one of those peaks, you don't just climb up the mountain. A lot of people would think you just start at the bottom and you climb up a little bit and you climb up a little more and you climb up a little more and you keep making progress up the mountain until you get to the summit. And that is actually not how you climb these big mountains. You have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. It's this process called acclimatization. And so you climb partway up the mountain, but then you come back down to base camp again. And then you climb up a little higher on the mountain, and then you come back down to your base camp again. So your base camp on Mount Everest is uh, it's about 17,500 feet. Anything above 18,000 is the point where your body is starting to deteriorate, your muscles are getting weaker. And so it's this crazy catch 22 of you want to climb up the mountain to get used to the altitude slowly, but the higher you climb, the weaker you get. You know, your muscles are deteriorating, so you have to come back down to base camp because base camp is where you can eat, you know, you know, you have more of an appetite, so you can get more nutrition. 
you get better sleep, you can hydrate, and that each time you come back down to base camp, you're getting stronger and you're preparing yourself to be even better the next time you go up the mountain. So you go to camp one and then you come back down to base camp. You climb up to camp two, 21,500 feet, come back down to base camp. You climb up to camp three, almost 24,000 feet above sea level, and you come all the way back down to base camp. So when you keep coming back down to base camp, it's really easy to think, oh my gosh, I'm losing ground. I'm not making progress. I'm climbing in the wrong direction. I need to be going up the mountain. But here I am back down at base camp. Yesterday, I was at 24,000 feet. Today, I'm at 17,500 feet. This is the wrong direction. It's easy to think that, but that's not the case because even though you are going backwards, you're helping your body acclimatize so that you can be better out of the gates the next time around. The next time you start to head up on your next rotation, you're going to be even stronger. And so what you have to wrap your head around is that sometimes progress doesn't look like progress and sometimes progress doesn't feel like progress, but it's still progress. And progress does not have to happen in one particular direction. Sometimes you do have to go backwards for a bit in order to eventually get to where you want to be. And I actually have a phrase that I use in my presentations, um, which is that backing up is not the same as backing down, right? Backing up is not the same as backing down. Sometimes we have to back up and we are not losing ground. We are not giving up. We are not retreating. We are taking an opportunity to get better. And that's the way I want people to look at progress. Sometimes you're going to have to change directions and you're going to have to backtrack and go in a direction that feels like it's not where you thought you wanted to be. But you have to embrace that and look at that as an opportunity to get even better. Well, I just ran through a brick wall. Thank you <laughs> so much, Allison. That was, and, and that was one directional, my friends. I did not, <laughs> but no, look, I, I think this is so beautiful. And if I'm listening into this and I'm using your base camp analogy, frankly, I think I'm actually going through a base camp, even growing my career. And what I mean by that is sometimes, like as an example, last Thursday and Friday, I unplugged for a few days from my core uh, responsibilities and I attended a mastermind. Mastermind is to work on yourself, to level up, to skill up, to train up, all this stuff. And some people could say, well, that's two days of lost productivity. And I say, <laughs> I actually think of it as the opposite. That two day investment in myself can propel me hundreds forward Versus if I just kept blocking and tackling every single day, I bet you if I checked in one year, two years, five years later, that person that is consistently sharpening their saw, even if it means time that they take away in order to reinvest in themselves, that is a calculated decision that I think we can all apply in our lives. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, if you don't take those opportunities to 
improve your skills. And with these, these mastermind meetings are great because you're checking in, but you're getting ideas and you're sharing ideas with others and you're making them better. And there is a huge return on that investment versus if you just stay status quo, you're not going to see that, that bump. Yep, totally, totally. So before we cut out of here as we're entering the home stretch here, I do have one final question for you. But before we get there, Allison, you have been so amazing for all playmakers that want to find you, follow you, just truly become, they already all are now raving fans, but where can we find you and follow you? So I'm not on social media very much. I have to say I'm probably on LinkedIn more than I am on any other platform, but um, I've got a website at alisonlevine.com, LinkedIn. Occasionally I'm on other social media, but it's usually just pictures of my dog. I love it. So it's, um, oh, if, but if you do, yeah, it's um, at, sorry, Levine underscore Allison is um, Twitter and Instagram when I am on there, Levine underscore Allison. Thanks. All right, this is the grand finale and we're gonna end on a bigger question, but it's because, Allison, a couple of things. One, yes, this is the Playmakers podcast. Before we hopped on, I explained how we view purpose. Not as much about distant North Star, more about the 365 way of life. But the way that you said something really inspired me to want to ask this. And for all Playmakers, let's say that I am listening and I say, I'm not sure why I was put here on this earth. And the reason I ask this is because you've said a couple times in this conversation, I was put here on this earth too. And in one case, you mentioned developing leaders and, and you went a couple different directions, which is awesome. So my thing is for the folks that already know that, awesome. Bear hugs, we love you and you're in a great spot. But let's say there's folks listening in that don't know yet. I'm gonna emphasize yet. I would love for you to share any insider perspective on the first step they can take or just some practical things that they can do to get closer to understanding why they were put here on this earth. I think one thing that helps is to make a list of five things that are important to you that bring you great joy. And if you make a list of those five things um, and think about those, and I think you don't have to come up with your purpose today or tomorrow in two weeks, I think it can come over a period of time, however long that is. But if you start with five core values that are important to you that you would fight for and focus on those things. And when it comes time to making difficult decisions, if you look back at those values, those can kind of be your North Star and help you make difficult decisions. Is the decision I'm about to make, is it in line with these values that are most important to me? And so I think that even if you feel like you don't know your life's purpose today, and I, by the way, your life's purpose can change over time. I think just coming up with those core values can help give you some direction toward that. Ah. Mic drop could not have thought of a better way and place to end. Allison, on behalf of every single playmaker out there listening in, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being with us today. Of course, it's my pleasure. And I just want to end with one final message to everybody, which is to remember that you do not, you do not have to be the best, fastest, strongest climber out there on the mountain every day, right? Because everyone's got mountains to climb. You just have to be the most relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. That's how you're going to get to the top of any mountain, be it literal or figurative. 
You just put one foot in front of the other. Don't worry about being the fastest. Don't worry about being the strongest. Just be relentless. Mm. Playmakers, go be relentless. With that, we're signing out. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.